this recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. I come to you with some degree of sadness this morning uh, because I received in the mail a clipping from a friend out of the Boston Globe. The world is much smaller than we realize, uh, particularly in uh, this time of mass communication. But it was a short uh, funeral notice that, that Jerry Adair had died. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. <clears throat> and one of the great rivals of uh, Drumwright Tornadoes, which was the appropriate metaphorical name of uh, the basketball team, one of the great rivals of the Drumwright Tornadoes uh, was the Sand Spring Sandies, and the star of the team in the early 50s was Jerry Adair. And I received a death notice that Jerry Adair had died of cancer. And it took me places I haven't been in years to ponder and uh, consider uh, the possibilities of what that kind of masculine hero worship of the one who had a system whereby the tension hormones within his body reacted to the terror of a zone defense. And to watch him play basketball in drum ride and then later to go on to Oklahoma State uh, to blaze a trail for me where he starred as a basketball player and then signed with the Baltimore Orioles and then played with the Boston Red Sox. His glove is in the Hall of Fame for the highest fielding percentage in one season by a second baseman. And Jerry Adair is dead, but a scant seven years older than I. He died at 50. Being consistent with my refusal to talk about mothers on Mother's Day or fathers on Father's Day because it's a secular holiday to sell cardboard cards, and yet, since next week is Father's Day, I won't talk about it next week. <laughs> I'll talk about it today. <clears throat> Yesterday afternoon, while preparing to go for my Saturday evening run, I sat down in front of the TV and flipped kind of mindlessly around, actually looking for weather and temperature as well as time, and I was lacing up my Nike waffle soles, and, and it was on a channel in which a f woman doctor appeared being introduced uh, to give a lecture. She was an endocrinologist lecturing on the endocrine system. I now know everything there is to know <laughs> about the endocrine system particularly about the hormone testosterone, which determines masculinity in the human animal. Testosterone provides for the male of the human species the ability to react quickly in the presence of danger. And she began to talk about the heredity and the genetic influence on masculinity and femininity and talked about why it is that by age 80, there are only 57 men for every 100 women. 
Why does it men die earlier than women? She said it was for two reasons. One is that the sole purpose of the male, as we look at the evolutionary pattern of the male, was to inseminate and forage. Well, the sexual drive in the male, which is for insemination and therefore procreation, as well as the ability to forage, that is, the ability to respond quickly to danger of large animal or uh, weather, it was very important for the survival of the species, whereas the women were to receive and give life and nurture it. And so there's a different endocrine system. And she went on to say that there is evidence that the eunuch lives longer uh, than normal males, uh, though no, not quite as meaningfully. <laughs> uh, the qualification is from me, not the doctor. Now, the implications of this for me are manifold. I'm reminded of Celia Hahn in a lecture that she gave at the Virginia Seminary several years ago talking about men and women and the biblical admonition of God in the book of Genesis to multiply and to dominate, that is to say, to multiply and have dominion. And she said that they divided up the labor, the women multiplied, the men dominated. <laughs> So what is the nature of being a man? Well, I was watching that program as I had just finished reading the obituary of Jerry Adair. I'm thinking of a little boy and what it is that he looks forward to as he grows up. And it is to conquer uh, the enemy, the beast, the one of danger. And then and to leave something other than himself behind in his gift of being a co-creator with God. For a moment, just a moment, as I began to listen to this doctor speak about uh, the endocrine system of the male and female and the distinguishing factors, I almost for a moment was lulled into the kind of thought that this was all predetermined. She went on to say that the single most influence in the longevity of life is not the Pritikin Center, unfortunately. It's not, it's not your diet or your exercise or even your style of life, it's heredity. And that if you took all of the diets and exercise and planning for longevity and put them together, you would extend your life one week. begin to think about the human being, particularly the male and my own maleness, as somehow being predetermined that all I was to do was to inseminate and forage all of my life. <laughs> For just a moment I was back in that place where I felt that the uh, prime uh, vocation was to conquer. And then all in a moment, it occurred to me that I knew another story, not just the scientific story of 
predetermination in genetic code. But I knew that there was a dimension to the human being, to both species, but experientially I knew that it was available to the male species. And that was that I had something within me that was from the Creator, that was before and will be after this endocrine system that returns to the dust out of which it came. And in that simple moment of reading an obituary, being drawn to some word about the animal or the somatic side, the physiology of what it means to be a male, I realized that I knew another story. And that is to say that I'm not just called to be a male to spend my life inseminating and foraging, but I'm called to be a person. And that just as the artist is in his art and the poet is in his poem, the creator is in me. And that I'm not determined by some genetic code that my life is transcendent. Eudora Welty in one writer's beginning writes, the events in our lives happen in a sequence in time, but in their significance to ourselves they find their own order, a timetable not necessarily, perhaps not possibly chronological. The time as we know it subjectively is often the chronology that stories and novels follow. It is the continuous thread of revelation. As I thought of my own life in reference to my endocrine system, I began to realize once again, almost in an experiential and physiological way of inhaling something from outside of me and yet exhaling from within me a spirit of knowing that I am a subject and not an object of study. And there is more to me than my instinct and appetite. Now, there is more to me than my heredity or even my environment. That there is something within me that is even beyond time. Ms. Welty talks about this continuous thread of revelation. Even as a little boy uh, sitting in a pondering nature, I thought that there was something beyond me. And I thought in kind of unarticulated uh, speculation that God had done a good thing. And that good thing included me. And that I was more than I was experiencing. And that there was more that I could experience. That there was another story, aside from just the chronology of time, or just this history. That there was something transcendent and mysterious. I even knew it then. And the reason I knew it then, because it had been sewn into my fabric, and was transcendent and eternal in a way that testosterone will never be. It is a continuous thread of revelation where the the poet is in the poem, and we experience time and time and, shall we say, eternally again, the reality that there is more to us than can be captured in any moment, 
and that every moment is a continuous thread of revelation. Remember what Miss Welty writes most profoundly, the events in our lives, reading little obituaries or watching a droning white noise of a TV. And the events in our lives happen in a sequence of time. I was a little boy, I am a man, but in their significance to ourselves, all of these events find their own order. A timetable not necessarily, perhaps not possibly, chronologically. Yesterday, I was ten years old, and I was pondering my own death all in a moment. It was not chronological. It somehow was integrated into all that I have been and all that I will ever be in a moment of tying my shoes. And the most mundane of events, in a sequence of time that no timetable could hold. The time, as we religious folk know it, as those called into community by God in creation and a covenant with Abraham and in a revelation in Christ, time as we know it subjectively, for we are not objects of study, but we are poems written by a poet who has woven himself into our own stanzas and verses. The time as we know it subjectively is often the kind of chronology found in stories that say once upon a time. And novels where we're not bound by time or space, we can write this day a novel of the 19th century or of the 21st. It is the continuous thread of revelation in the events of our own lives. This, it seems to me, what Jesus was about when he said, let those who have eyes see and those who have ears hear. Because all about us in every moment is the most significant revelation of eternity. And one of the revelations for this day is that we are indeed, and somehow experientially in history, victims of our own predetermination of masculinity and femininity. That somehow in the genetic pool of 800 ancestors, my death day is set within hours. And yet, at the same time, I'm not an object of either heredity or my endocrine system or my testosterone. I may be a man and thank God for that. And yet, more importantly, I'm a person. A person who has available to him all the gifts in the universe, all of the natural gifts that have been given to us to be male and to be female, and yet not to worship any of those and to go on continually to becoming more and more human. This is what Christianity has revealed to me through the most human of males, Jesus of Nazareth, who was whole because of his ability to see himself and others as not objects of study, but as poems written by the poet that hold within stanza and verse the very image of the poet, the imago dei within. Perhaps it's unfair to either be critical or judge the doctor who's saying that we are victims of heredity and hormone. Perhaps she knows the other side too. But it is my place and our place in community to say there is another story that time cannot capture. 
and that we must pay attention to our events in order to see the poet in our own poem. I've told you of one event. Another happened last summer, and it's a story about men. I was in Michigan and received in one day four, uh, three separate conversations. One with my father, one with my 16-year-old son by phone, uh, my father by phone, my 16-year-old son by letter, and my nine-year-old son who was with me by personal conversation. It was such a startling event to me to talk with the three men I know best, make that four, for it includes me, that I couldn't let the event go without recording it. And in this, I hope you will see what you, Dora Welty, calls that continuous thread of revelation. I hope you will see in this the nature of chronology and what the Greeks called kairos, uh, the structure of time and the essence of time all in one moment. Do you see this is a story about four males and one male? You see that this is a story of subjects who know that there is more to them than time can capture, except within time there is this continuous thread of revelation. Mortimer Adler claims that the most creative educational time is idle time, when the engine is running but the gears are neutral. The mental motor is in its contemplative mode. Well, vacations and holidays give us such times. One day this summer, while idling the hours away, I had a chance to reflect on the males I know best. There are four of us spanning the four periods of life. My father is 75. I'm 43. My first son is 16. My second son, 10. Childhood, adolescence, middle age, and old age stages of development with separate issues. At the same time, each phase holds information which is invaluable to the others. <coughs> this insight <coughs> may not be original, but my awareness of the separate and related nature of us four males came as a synchronistic series of communications one day in one summer. I serve as a chaplain at a seasonal community in northern Michigan for the month of August. This year, my 16-year-old had to return home for two-a-day football practices. My wife accompanied him to cook, nurse, and otherwise be servant to this teen <laughs> in a tenuous mother-son relationship, <clears throat> a kind of relationship where abuse and nurture somehow blend <laughs> in a kind of uneasy interdependency designed to help each other outgrow the other. And I share such a relationship with this 16-year-old on the other side of sexual psychology. My 10-year-old and I remained at our cottage with two weeks alone for what we sarcastically refer to in a parody of TV's perfect families as dad and lad time. <laughs> no. 
One Thursday, I received a letter from my football-playing son, had a long-distance phone conversation with my father, and a late-night talk with my young lad. In each experience, what was undeniable and inexpressible was how different we were, and yet so much the same. Undeniable because of the contradictory feelings of warmth and distance, and inexpressible because of the complicated psychology of masculine development. First, the written. The neophyte knight in his first armor wrote a four-part letter. Paragraph one dealt with competition for a position as the starting tight end, which only injury or coaching error could deny him. <laughs> The next section of the letter was a terse reference to how he had broken up with his current female projection. <laughs> the third paragraph was to my celebrity status for an essay which I had written had been published in the Houston Post. His best friend's mother had it taped to the refrigerator. <laughs> the closing was a disclosure of his sensitivity to the boredom his brother and I must be experiencing without him. <laughs> and there it was all in a moment. Competition, sexuality, hero modeling, and egoism, all masculine, all adolescent issues. Well, my first reaction to the letter was appreciation. Though it was a response to an earlier letter from me, it was a response. And then each area of reference caused a contradictory reaction within me. Middle age has sometimes been called the second adolescence. Everything with which he is struggling is still at issue for me but my time for resolution is much shorter. Competing for professional and personal success, accepting failures when it's easier to blame others, those are my issues. For him, just beginning for me, now too familiar. Sexuality at middle age is so dependent on what has been left incomplete from the adolescent stage. The knowledge is greater, but so are the stakes. My need now is not so much for a hero, but a heroine. And most of my mentors' feet were hewn as mine in a metaphorical clay, and most have fallen. On the issue of ego, he's just developing his, and mine at last is diminishing. How different and how alike we are how much we share, how few things we have in common concerning current interests or language. Maybe that's why we speak of sports so much. Well, after reading the morning letter came an afternoon, an afternoon phone conversation with my father. My mother died a year ago, and father lives alone in a small town in East Texas. How interested he is in simple things. 
my brother's house, my niece's school, his own social life, and the pennant race. More so even, the details hold his interest. He's at peace with conquered and unconquered knights, with macro issues of war and justice. He putters. He reflects. He's interested. He's related. And he's alone. The peacefulness of one who's retired from competition, competition with job, competition with a woman, it is inevitable. But I'm left with the conflict of how peaceful he is and how utterly singular he is. I cherish his peace and fear the truth of how when tension and crisis leave, they leave one alone. My father is a second son, and so am I. And that evening late, my second son and I popped corn, sat side by side on the long plaid couch. The TV provided that white noise. There was a monologue from an aging star. The boy recounted his day. He sailed the sunfish with Jack as first mate. The cob hissed as they sped by his pen and signet. He rubbed a blister at tennis. I warned him. He wore no socks. <laughs> he rode to town with the Browns to see the offshore power boats. His favorite was the Love It Again. He wiped his salty hand on my pants and told me how he hated school and that this cottage on the lake was his favorite place in the whole world. He wondered if Mom had gotten his school stuff and if his brother had made the first team. Interest and innocence. In reflection, I regretted that I had lost his youthful interest in the details of the day. I was relieved my innocence, though lost, would return, even though it too had diminished. My little boy, so spontaneous, carefree, and close. He had so much to give to me. And I would return the favor, I hoped, by leading him through the adolescent maze of masculinity. How interesting that my second son and my father had more in common with one another than my first child and me. We two in the middle had more in common than with either of them at the extremes. How different each from the other and all the same. If middle age is a second adolescence and old age a second childhood, then the wives' tales are true about men. A day later, Reflecting from my porch swing, I saw the swans. I saw some Canada geese, a floating dock, a stone bridge, half visible because of high lake water. And it all seemed 
so natural, the evergreen and the daylily. The events in our lives happen in a sequence in time, but in their significance to ourselves, they find their own order. A timetable not necessarily, perhaps not possibly chronological. The time as we know it, subjectively, is often the chronology that stories and novels follow. It is this continuous thread of revelation. I was saddened yesterday to read that Jerry Adair had died. But he lives, even if for a moment in time, when one bends in the humility of being human to tie his shoe, that in the continuous thread of revelation, truth and love transcend time. Amen.